Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. We talked about jazz recently. I feel like there are many great uh, jazz and therapy analogies that I've, I had a teacher who wrote papers on this. Really? And yeah, yeah. Like the improvisational a, aspect, you're the improvisation, yeah, yeah, the back and forth. And so, you know, with that said, let's, I think today, welcome to Not Therapy, <laughs> listeners. Today is, today's gonna, Adam's gonna be, uh, we've, right, we've been talking a lot about, this one. about, uh, and soloing is, is an apt term because not, I am yeah. solo in the world in a way. And yet I'm in the sense that I'm not in a partnership or any sort of significant, no, forget significant. I'm in no romantic relationship. I haven't had any, any, I have not had an in-person conversation with a person I am not related to since, since July. I, yeah. I left SF July 28th and yeah. I've so in a sense I'm more alone in the world than I typically am but in another sense I'm actually less alone because I have been living with my family which constitutes my parents and also my sister my brother-in-law and my three nieces and nephews ranging Mm -hmm. in age from 5 to 12 they live in a two-family house together which I'd always call when I was in New York I'd come back here at least once a month in a very sort of you know (laughs) <laughs> rigid way, the way I try to orchestrate my schedule, I'd come back, basically I'd buy a 30-day unlimited Metro card in New York when it was up. I'd be like, all right, time to go back. Oh, huh. And of course, I'd come down here on a Sunday and then I'd go back on a Friday so they don't miss the weekend for stand-up because that's the prime stand-up time. Uh-huh. But I, I was pretty religious about coming down here every uh-huh. 30 days or so because it's just there's just so much love here mm. and so much connection and... I mean, I consider myself, we've talked about, for me, one of the great mysteries of my life, probably the greatest mystery, really, is why am I so lucky? Mm. And we can unpack that more, but I really do feel, yeah, just incredibly, unjustifiably, unwarrantedly lucky in so many ways. Mm. But the single biggest way, I would say, is is my family. Mm-hmm. And, but it's very different having a a very independent life in New York, um, you know, for 30 days and also going on the road and performing other places and then, and then dipping back for four or five, four or five days here Mm -hmm. every month or so versus being here continuously for whatever it's been, seven and a half coming up on eight months. Mm -hmm. And it's been, yeah, I think one reason I've, so I came here initially, I was going to be here just for three weeks Mm -hmm. and then the bay area caught on fire heard about that or the surroundings caught on fire and the smoke was you know unprecedented and then my relationship with clara ended mm-hmm. and so those were two yeah two reasons to stay here and then i became yeah i became afraid frankly is what what is my life going to be like in the bay area absent that relationship with clara um during a pandemic mm. and the truth is when i'm in the bay area so I've, I've gone down for several months every year starting 2017 to do shows at a wonderful theater called the marsh i can't say enough good things about them and the truth is typically when i'm down there i'm not seeing and this is true of my life in new york too 
is I'm not seeing, I'm probably seeing people socially maybe once a week, a little bit more in New York, but I'm getting a lot, but I'm doing shows. So, and that fulfills a need for socializing, both in the sense that I am sharing and communicating on the stage, as well as just incidental contact with, uh, you know, when I'm in New York, I'm seeing this community of other comics that I've been a part of for more than a decade. So I'm seeing them every night when I'm doing a run in SF, it's a little different. It's maybe three, four nights a week, but I am getting contact that way. But that's not happening with the pandemic. And there was this sense of, if I go to the Bay Area, I mean, I do have a handful of very, very close friends. I mean, I would say you're the closest, but there's there's several others who I'm, people who I, I love unreservedly. But it just felt like most days I probably would not see another human being. Mm-hmm. And that that felt like, yeah, like not not good for me, really, is what it felt yeah. like. So you've Yeah, I'm really curious what you have learned. Apart from we've you know, we've talked some and we could keep talking about this if you want, the sort of decision that you've had to make about do I stay or do I go? Yeah, but I feel where I what I feel most curious about is not that is what have you been experiencing and learning by spending so much time around your family? Because as we've talked about before, it's like uh, being with one's family of origin can be really challenging. It is a prime setup for all sorts of childhood stuff coming up the regression olympics we've called it it's like a real dojo for self-growth and you've been doing some heavy lifting there and i yeah i'm curious like what have you noticed what have you learned it's been a process the reason that i've stayed so well the last really significant psychedelic journey I had. And one of the last ones full stop, and we've talked about this on on a prior episode, was, this was in July. Mm-hmm. And coming out of that trip, I I got a clear, I, I don't like saying I got a clear message because that, that implies a level of certainty about what's going on in the psychedelic experience that we're getting intelligence outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's- I like how, that, yeah. Yeah, how can I state it as neutrally as possible? Well, you know, it felt like a message, but I wouldn't necessarily say, was it a message from the mushrooms? Was it a message from God? Was it a message from my subconscious? Or was it just a realization, a run-of-the-mill realization? Whatever it was, it felt like more than just a run-of-the-mill realization. I think this is part of the power of psychedelics is these things have the, um, what's the term for it? Where, where it's like the ring of truth. Gnosis, um, sort of like, it's like a Gnostic quality. There's a specific term that the, that the Hopkins researchers use that I really like. Uh, uh, the noetic quality. Yes, there you go, noetic quality, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it feels deeply, tr- you know deep in your marrow that this is, that this has a ring of truth. Yeah, and that's one of the beautiful things about the psychedelic experience okay. for, specifically for me, who, I'm so often tormented by doubt and second guessing. Yeah. And to be clear, I can have that even with these sort of these experiences that have this noetic quality after the fact, but but some of that sense of this is true, this is deeply true for me, not necessarily it's an objective fact out in the world, but this is something that feels true to me at this time. Some of that permeates and remains. Yeah. And that's what integration is is then 
sitting with these things that came up and had a had this feeling of deep truth to them and then fi- figuring out what to do with them how to weigh them how to how to sort of plug them into the fabric of your life so that they don't just get left out there in uh, psychedelic land but also you don't you know one thing that i've been taught um is that you, you never make a decision immediately after a psychedelic experience like you don't someone comes out of i have i have a a dear friend who's who's no longer with his ex-partner uh for good reasons and he had many psychedelic experiences during their relationship where he saw with blinding clarity you know the house they needed to buy the kids they needed to have he was he was ready to go you know ring shopping uh and he learned over time that no yeah you kind of you know you let it sit maybe it's you know it might be a metaphor for some other kind of truth you don't like you don't go buy a house right after a a journey which i've 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 made that mistake not with buying a house um but with um kind of acting on or saying things that came out of a journey before it had time to settle and that that process becoming a little sloppy yeah i i have made that mistake as well and yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I look at this psychedelic experience as I sometimes think of Terence McKenna, his idea of like triangulation, mm. where to kind of you know, I, I love that for McKenna. I feel like the big question he's grappling with is what is reality, mm-hmm. and he talks about we basically have two normal states of experiencing reality: regular consciousness and then dreaming. Dreaming is this mysterious state that is so mm. radically different, and yet there is and there's consciousness there. It's a different form of consciousness. And then he talks about the psychedelic experience as a third way to experience reality. When you have mm. three points, you can triangulate. Mm. I mean, he's talking in metaphors, but there is something to that, and I bring that up now because I feel like, yeah, it's another data point to be assimilated into whatever general model you're developing as a human as to what's going on. If you're the sort of human who is constantly wondering what's going on, which I am. I like that because you're, you're holding the, the insights from the psychedelic experience or from the dream lightly. You're having a very light touch with that, yeah. but you're also holding the experiences of your mind in regular waking consciousness lightly. And that's, you know that's what the meditative traditions are all about that's what we talk about so much on this podcast is how to how to have your mind screaming something at you and to say oh interesting perspective like thanks yeah thanks mind thanks ego like i'll take that under advisement um but i you know so i've been that's something that i've been sitting with a lot recently in this relationship as i unpeel um layer after layer of the onion that is my avoidant attachment style mm, yeah <laughs> it's just like my 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 fucking brain screams at me to, yeah <laughs> to to run away at times yeah fortunately other times it screams at me to like go on zillow and start looking for a house to <laughs> move into with my partner right now so it's like <laughs> You know, I'm I'm like buffeted from both sides by <laughs> these insane messages. But it's a it's a practice of learning how to see what your mind is throwing at you and just kind of hold it all lightly. And yeah, I love that triangulation image of using all the data points to hopefully sort of navigate a 
a helpful course through your life. Yeah. I mean, ultimately there's no roadmap and we're all making our own decisions moment by moment. I think one of those decisions is, is how, yeah. How, how do you integrate the psychedelic experience into your, into your ordinary life and into the decisions you're making? But yeah, to bring it back to the more general, you tripped, you tripped this summer, you got access to privileged information coming, Can't really coming share directly. It, was it the fifth dimension or the sixth dimension? It's, I mean, the fifth dimension, I, I kind of live there regularly. I've tripped enough by now. So we're talking seventh dimension. This was se- seventh, eighth, seventh maybe dimension. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that, so listeners could only begin to imagine the kind of privileged <laughs> level of <yeah>. spiritual <laughs> elevation. No, but it, on this trip, the message, if I'm going to go with that, and I guess I am, that, that was that popped up very clearly for me. I mean, it was this beautiful, we did talk about it before, but it was, I was not planning on a strong journey. And in fact, I took what for me is almost a trivially small dose of mushrooms. Mm-hmm. It was 2.5 grams and I got blown out of the water and I was yeah. in a space where there were other people around and it was, and it was very quickly, it was like, okay, this can really spiral out of control mm. or I just have to keep surrendering moment to moment. If I try to control this, this is not going to go well. And mm-hmm. it was ultimately, it felt like I was gifted. That's what it felt like. This really beautiful, loving experience. It felt like the universe was just showering me with love. Mm. And coming out of that, or during that experience, one thing that came up very clearly is, dude, you're fine. Mm. Like, like, yes, you, you, you have OCD. You get trapped sometimes. It can be painful. But you're consistently gaining more and more freedom, slowly but surely. Mm. Uh, you have a clear direction in your life. You don't always follow that direction. By that, I mean more of the creative and professional things, but you know what you want to do. You are moving towards it slowly, but you are moving towards it. You've been given so much, and really, it's about service now. Mm. That's That's got to be the number one priority. Mm. And then right on the heels of that was the sense of, oh, mom and dad, they need me right now. Mm. They need me. Mm. Early stage Alzheimer's. And, you know, the changes are not, I would say they're, they wouldn't be obvious to someone meeting him for the first mm-hmm. time, but they're fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know him well and, mm-hmm. and it's obviously challenging for my mother. I mean, diagnosed when he was still a practicing physician, right? So Yes. Come, so Well, that was sort of what hastened his retirement. He's, he's 74, so it's not like. Yeah. But a very high baseline. Yes, it, precisely. Yes. An extraordinarily intelligent person, someone who I don't think, not I don't, there's no one I admire more in the world than my father and my mother, I would say. I mean, just really remarkable people who came from very little, especially in my father's case, mm-hmm. in the sense of, I don't mean just economically, though that was there too, yeah. but also, I mean, his parents really. I don't think they loved him. There's all sorts of stories where it was like they really, really favored his older brother. And somehow from that, he's built this family of, you know, where people really, really love each other and really, really show up for each other and really, really enjoy each other's company. And I appreciate how rare that is. So, yeah, it's challenging, I think, especially for my mother, because they've always been real life partners. They met when she Mm. was 17, he was 19, and they've been together continuously. 
and they've always you know loved each other's company loved one another's company uh, when i was when i was going to college they had a bicycle built for two this is the early 90s no one was riding bicycle built or tandem bikes then and like people were gawking on campus while my parents were biking around and they were just oblivious i mean they're <laughs> they're in love they're 50 50 what how many years is it of marriage 50 something 51 52 um 52 i think and they're mm palpably in love you know they'll take weekends away they so to suddenly have and they've just been well they've i think probably the most important mm. thing for a long-term relationship is just really enjoying one another's company and they've always had that in spades and now suddenly my father is not my mother's equal to put it bluntly mm. he yeah they can't have conversations the same way they could they can't engage at the same level they could Mm. And yeah, that's a devastating change. Yeah. And uh, I would imagine I not having had anyone in, in, in my family uh, close to me struggle with dementia, but having known a lot of people and a close friend, another close friend of mine, her mom has dementia right now. There's the, there's the acute loss of what is different right now. And then there is the looming of further changes, further losses to come, sort of weighing on the horizon. Yeah, and as you said that, I felt the, that's the little stab of anxiety because honestly, I haven't even thought about that. Mm. Uh, that's just not, yeah, that hasn't been on the emotional radar for me. The fact that, yeah, it's not going to get better and it's likely going to get worse. So the time frame is uncertain, Yeah, you know, so... Maybe that's part of it. I don't know if it's just denial, but it's like, yeah, I don't know. He, you know, it, it, yeah, I guess it probably will get worse, but. But real, I mean, yeah, just heavy stuff. I've, I think I've said this to you before. I, when I am around my parents and I notice signs of decline, my parents are thankfully in good health, but they're a bit older. And, you know, if I go for a walk with my dad and I notice that he's just more stooped and slower than he used to be, that is liable to send, you know, I want to say my inner child just, you know, kind of reeling that can really put me in an anxiety state. Um, and I just, I can only begin to imagine what it would be like for me to be seeing one of my parents in, you know, a more noticeable state of physical or cognitive change yeah and it's been a it's uh, yeah we let's, let's talk a little bit about this um my hesitation is because i also want to talk more about present stuff things that are happening right now but i had you know i feel like listening to the podcast one could be left with the impression that I'm tripping like on a weekly basis, and the truth is, I it's it's a fairly infrequent thing for me. But this this story does uh, pivot on a psychedelic journey, which was this was wow, this was almost two years ago. This was July of 2019, and I had an LSD trip. I think it's probably the last LSD trip I had, and I realized. And I, prior to this, I wasn't at my parents' place during this trip, but I had just spent several days with them prior to this trip and I saw what I was doing with my father which was getting annoyed at him and kind of snapping when he at him when he wasn't totally clear on what was going on 
and honestly, a fair amount of this might not have been cognitive on his mm. part. It might have been auditory, like his hearing isn't as good as it was. Mm. But he'd, he'd often, but some of it is cognitive, and he often does say, oh, I'm sorry, what, what, you know, what were you saying? Or could you, could you repeat that? Or could you explain that? Mm-hmm. And my attitude in these days I'd spent with him prior to this trip was kind of dismissive, like, like annoyed, annoyed that he wasn't, whew, yeah, I'm feeling it now, uh, that he wasn't getting it, you know? Annoyed. Mm. And I realized um, mm. on this trip how how horrible that was to be that way. I don't even mean horrible like I'm a bad person for being that way, but like is that is that really what how I want to spend whatever remaining time I have with my father is just being kind of annoyed at him. And then I realized, of course, the reason I'm being that way. Oh man. If this was a video podcast, people could see my tears and they'd be deeply moved and our ratings would go through the roof and the advertising dollars would flow. That's that tendency to use humor to cover up vulnerability, by the way. Like and subscribe if you want more tears. <laughs> if you want more tears. No, it's beautiful. Thank you for but, um, going to a vulnerable place. Yeah, well, what I realized was like, oh yeah, of course I'm snapping at him because it's just easier to not feel the deep sadness under there and just be like kind of, and it was almost like dismissing him like he's a non-entity, like, oh, like you don't get it, old man, you know what, screw you, I'm not gonna repeat it. I was, yeah. and so on this trip. Such a, such a human, such an understandable human response. Yeah. To pain like that. Yeah, exactly, just, just, I mean, I think it's the root of kind of what, um, of so much of what we see with political strife and, and which is basically d- diminishing or dehumanizing the other person saying they don't matter mm. because it's easier to be like, Oh yeah, fuck those, those, you know, those immigrants from, uh, from Mexico rather than feeling the deep pain that I believe at some level, I believe this, it's a naive belief maybe that everyone, even Donald Trump feels when you see kids in cages. Mm. And so one way you can deal with that loss, there's two ways, right? You can open up to it. And then commit yourself to the difficult work of change, yeah, um, or not, but just open up to it. It's not like I'm doing anything to make that situation better <laughs> with, mm. with immigration. Or you can, because I believe everyone wants to feel like they're a good, caring person. The other alternative, and a very seductive one, is to say it's those people's fault that they're they're that way. Mm-hmm. It's that person's fault yeah. that they're addicted to crack. It's that, and therefore I don't have to feel bad because fuck them. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it reminds me of something I heard Pema Chodron say in a talk I was listening to recently, which is that like people have, people might have the misconception that, you know, uh, sort of in, enlightened or for lack of a better word, really a spiritually attained beings. You're talking about me, uh, right? Live in yes. a, <laughs> <laughs> live in their uh, parents' attic. Was that drug. the way you, that was, you're going to finish <laughs> your sentence. You don't do enough psychedelics anymore. <laughs> Damn it, man. I'm dropping down tripping. to like level not, three enlightenment. Fuck. You're not, you're not tripping weekly anymore. Uh, but yeah, people have this misconception that it's a, 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 a blissful existence. And I think in some ways it's a, it's a more settled existence, but the, the point Pema Chodron was making is that it's you, the more you can, the more you attain spiritually, the more you are able to strip away that protection and open mm-hmm. yourself up to the pain of the world. And this world, if you are open to it is an absolutely searing place. Yeah. I mean, there is just suffering everywhere. And I feel, yeah, I mean, that's something that I am thinking about a lot in my regular life and also in my work. 
my struggle uh, when I go into the to the psychiatric emergency room where I spend a, a chunk of my time these days is not people will sometimes say to me like, Oh my God, that must be so sad or so overwhelming. The struggle with, for me, and I think for a lot of people is not to deal with the overwhelming sadness of it. It's to deal with the repression. It's Mm -hmm. to actually figure out how to let it in and feel it. Cause if I, cause it still gets in some way, if I don't let it in and feel it and open myself to the sadness, but it comes out as, you know, like this, uh, a, some eczema on my arm will flare up and be itchy or I'll just feel really stressed and I'll, or I'll be, I'll snap at my partner or something. It'll still, the sadness will still get into me and affect me. Uh, and I won't be able to, yeah, cleanse it, let it move through me in the, the only way to do that is to open yourself to sadness, which you just taught us how to do. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this before where, I mean, emotions, I believe, are information-rich states. Yeah. And that if we try to shut them out, we're depriving ourselves of what of a gift. Yeah. Of a gift. And also, yes, it's it's a false it's a false dichotomy to be like, well, I can feel this or I can choose not to feel it. You can't choose not to feel it. Right. Once the awareness is there, you're feeling it. And if you try to repress it, yes, it will express in another and often distorted way. And yeah. I do think yeah, you get these crazy positions of, I mean, I don't want to get into politics simply because it will, I will become angry. And, but um, yeah, you get people with just these really distorted, pretty horrific viewpoints because they're, yeah, it's, I think a lot of it is a reaction to a, a way to avoid feeling sadness mm-hmm. and loss and fear yeah. and uncertainty. That, that information rich nature of pain ties into something we've talked about a number of times, which is the use of conventional medications, namely SSRIs in your case, which prevented you for years from being able to be in touch with pain and sadness in your body. And therefore you were prevented um, is my understanding of your experience. And this is something I have certainly heard from a lot of other people. You were prevented from mining that rich source of information so that you could navigate your way to the, to the places in you that needed to be healed. And I think that's a really under discussed side effect of psychiatric medications. Yeah. I feel like I might not have developed OCD were I not on SSRIs because I was on SSRIs prior to that already for just anxiety. I was diagnosed with depression. I mean, I was I did not know that. Yeah. I was on SSRIs. I had been on SSRIs for 10. I was put on SSRIs when I was 18 <sighs> and I was diagnosed with OCD when I was 29. I didn't realize that. And it was in response. Yeah. Yeah. I probably haven't made that. That feels significant. Yeah. You know, I never actually thought of that, but to me, as we've talked about, the OCD emerged quite suddenly, though certainly, I mean, there were lots of precursors there, rigidity, deep anxiety, control, all this stuff. That's why yeah. I was on the SSRIs and I'd been hospitalized twice at age 18. So it's not like it came out of nowhere, but the specific form of OCD that I developed, that did develop very suddenly after a romantic relationship ended that I did not fucking cry for once yeah. for years, despite having lived with this woman for three years and being madly in love with her. Yeah. And perhaps had I not been on SSRIs, I would have done what she did, which was she mourned it deeply. Yeah. And, you know, it was, I think, incredibly difficult for her and then moved on as best she could. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, 
brings the image to my mind that has the quality of like a, one of those toys that you used to be able to get where you squeeze it and it's kind of filled with some like mushy mm, yeah, sand yeah. and the eyes pop out and the ears pop out and the nose pops out and it's like uh, a few of those a few of those parts were like taped down so this other so this <laughs> crazy reaction just like what the left ear just popped popped clean off the toy and the sand started coming out and that's what you know, uh, spending hours obsessing over wh- whether to get an iPod or a Zune or something, which <laughs> right. I think is was like an early OCD experience yeah, of yours. Yeah. That has that that has that quality uh, w- when I think about it. I'm just like, where the fuck did this come from? Oh yeah, OCD is absolutely, I think, a form of displacement. I don't know if I'm using that correctly in the traditional uh, psychological sense, but what I mean is, hey, there's these feelings of loss and fear in my body that I can't really do anything about directly. So instead, let me make sure that the light switch is off by checking it 327 times. Yeah, I don't have that form of OCD, but the idea is like, let me control something that ultimately doesn't matter at all because the thing that I really want to control, which is ultimately the sensations in my body, the emotions, I believe that's always the root of OCD. I know I can't control that. Yeah. So I'll buy into this delusion but comforting delusion that if i can get the light switch right or the stove right or my hands perfectly clean or in my case the perfect decision i'll feel good i'll feel safe i'll feel okay and of course it does the opposite yeah you feel more unsafe less okay yeah so it um but yeah back to my father um so so this this lsd trip i had in 2019 so yeah, on this trip, I suddenly saw that the choice I was making was to basically, in a sense, kill my father while he was still here, mm. not 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 have him be a real person to me, mm-hmm. because it was, in the moment, it felt it was very painful um, when he wouldn't, you know, when there'd be a, an obvious sign of his decline, and I didn't want to engage with that pain, so I went to anger, which for me is a my oldest and I would say in some ways deepest addiction is anger to go Mm -hmm. to anger rather than feeling loss. Mm -hmm. And on this trip, man, I mean, well, we we were talking about SSRIs, so I really could not cry on SSRIs. I did cry. No, I don't know if I cried at all on all the years I was on SSRIs. Mm -hmm. There were a few times in my SSRI career, which ranged from age 18 to 33 where I did cry, but those might've been times where I was temporarily off SSRIs. Yeah, and that's a, a very common experience is for people to get weepy when coming off of or, or withdrawing from SSRIs. Yeah. Uh, a friend of, course, of mine calls it backlog crying. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really beautiful way to look at it. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> obviously, in many situations, for many people, it gets misinterpreted as uh, a pathological sign that some underlying depression is reasserting itself. Right, and now you better go back on the SSRIs. Look at your crying constantly. Yeah. So it's you such it proves yeah. you need the drugs. Right. It's such a uh, granted. It's it can it's very hard to live your life if you you know if you have to go to work to feed your family and you cry because like a, a two pigeons were. <laughs> two pigeons were like nuzzling each other on a sill and you just couldn't handle the poignancy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. Backlog crying. I love that. Yeah. And so for me, the one, well, actually we'll get to, I've cried recently and this is, un, I, once I was off the SSRIs, crying became 
a more regular part of my life, but still pretty irregular. But when I'm tripping, uh, I would say the vast majority of the time I'm tripping, I'm going to get a good cry in. Um, mm. And this particular LSD trip where I just kind of hit me like, wow, this is the choice I am making unconsciously to go to anger with my father rather than letting him in and, and letting in this person who is not the same as the dad I've always had, but is still a human being and still someone who I feel mm. as deep a love as I feel for any human being. Mm. The choice I'm making to go to anger is I saw it. And man, I just, I was, I was on a beach with a bunch of people I did not know that well, though we're really we're wonderful people. And I just crawled over and just sobbed for like 20 minutes, teeth gnashing. Around, with them around? Yeah, with them. I mean, they were tripping too. Oh, and it was a deserted beach. And it was like... Were they worried about you or did they get at it? At one point, I kind of pulled up my head. I was like, I actually, I was like through sobs. I was like, I feel wonderful just so you all know. And then I just put my head... But I was like grinding, like I was e literally eating sand. I mean, I was just writhing around, just letting the sobs out. Yeah. And I had it. I had one of those in college, on a beach with mushrooms, <laughs> and a, the whole thing—the crying and the sand and the face—and at some point. I began to have an allergic reaction of some sort. <laughs> Maybe like a I don't little know bit of shellfish or something. A little bit of <laughs> no, no, crab shell. Only time, only time in my life something like this has happened. I have no serious allergies, anything. I have had mushrooms since then in Peru in the 1980s. <laughs> right. So Before it's the Statue <laughs> of Limitation. <laughs> you um, uh, meditated. Yep. I, <laughs> but I... Yeah, I had my face. So I like, you know, you're normal. You're on, you're crying and tripping on the beach as a college senior. People are not necessarily going to get it anyway. But then I, then I stood up at some point and my face looked like Mickey Rourke from the wrestler. <laughs> I had like huge lips and huge eyes. And uh, eventually I took some, someone had the sense to give me some Benadryl and it went really? down. But it, was, wow. it was quite shocking. So anyway, back to your, back to your cathartic, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, non-eruptive beach psychedelic crime. There were no, uh, yeah, there was no, um, no allergic reactions. So, so yeah, I'm writhing around just, yeah, it just sobbing. And I was like, God, well, I mean, it was one of these times where I was just so grateful for psychedelics because I could imagine myself going through the remainder of my time with my father I mean, I don't know. I'd like to think it would have dawned on me what I was doing and the choice I was making. I mean, this is one of, I think, the the beautiful things about psychedelics is they show us, or I'll make it personal, they show me often the very obvious choices that I'm making that I am have either refused to see or just haven't seen. Mm. And then mm -hmm. once you see that, it's like, oh, is that the choice I want to make? Hell no. Yeah. No, I want to be with my father and I want to feel the sadness when he forgets something and I want to be loving towards him. And as a result of that trip, it was actually... It was nice. I um, I cut my trip short. Not my not my LSD trip. That that ran its course. Um, but that product is not approved. Right. But I I went back to my parents. I was supposed to be going back mm. to New York, and instead I went back to my parents and and had had a few days with them, and uh, yeah, was able to fairly effortlessly make this choice mm. to just kind of open up and be with my dad as he was, and um, beautiful. So, so what's been coming up recently with them? Yeah. So, you know, I'm just going to pee quickly and then we'll, we'll launch into this. Okay. We, we can run an advertisement here <laughs> for Flomax. Full bladder. Try. 
All right, I am back after a successful micturition. I, I think that's <laughs> is that the is that the medical term for urinate urinating? It is nice. All yeah. right. nice lingo. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had this. So on this more recent mushroom trip, I did have this sense that your parents need you. Having said that, mm-hmm. it wasn't like go back and live with them. It was like go back for a few weeks. Yeah, and and I did go back for those weeks, and then. As discussed, I wound up staying. And yeah, it's been part of the reason I've stayed is so initially there was this fear of just being really lonely if I'm alone in the Bay Area. But it's in a way I see more and more that love is love, Mm -hmm. meaning that the love that I got to explore and practice with Clara I am also able to, it feels like in some ways, this is an extension of that or a continued growth for that. Meaning mm-hmm. that in order to grow, maybe I don't need love, maybe that's not the only way, but but being in close community with people I love feels feels pretty vital. And so much of what I learned from the relationship with Clara in terms of how do I wanna show up to this relationship applies to my parents hmm. and so what's it's really been a a vehicle i would say for growth and opening and and yeah pretty it feels like at times pretty profound transformation and what happened was i early on and you and i talked about this though i don't think we did a podcast about it i was feeling a lot of i found so a l- all right, a little bit of history with the parents. I had an incredibly contentious relationship with them growing up, specifically my mother. We would get into mm-hmm. massive, massive fights almost every day from the earliest age I remember. And these fights would often result in her crying. She just couldn't control me. And these were these were about nothing. These fights where she would tell me to pick up my toys or don't read you know, at the dinner table. Things that were, most people would say, yeah, that's a it's it's totally appropriate for a parent to make those demands but for some reason i would get furious mm-hmm. i would get violently angry and smash my toys and punch her you know 5 years old i couldn't hurt her but i would just fly into these rages and she would try to respond as best she could but what do you do with a kid who's I don't want to get too much. I can, I can, I can see your eyes brighten. Like, oh, this is good mom town stuff. I would love to explore the history more on another episode. Uh, but suffice to say, for now, it was a very yeah. I mean, I, I look at it as, and maybe this is, there's probably a lot to this. The way I look at it, that we could unpack. But I ultimately look at it as, in some way, like she was fine and I was wrong isn't quite the right word, but I don't know what she could have done better as a mother. Mm -hmm. I really don't. I feel like I just came out of the womb with this real intensity and this, you know, real sensitivity and was triggered easily. And there probably is more to that. I mean, clearly there was a dynamic at play that I think caused Mm -hmm. things to escalate and maybe another parent could have found a way to put the brakes on it. Or maybe it's letting me just scream and punch my, the walls of my room alone. Or maybe it's setting firmer boundaries. Or I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I know for her, she was not, yeah, I don't think she was able to effectively control me. And I wasn't able to control myself. And the aftermath of these fights 
was always profound shame mm-hmm. because I made my mother cry and I knew she was a good mom and I knew she loved me. And I knew even at five or six years old, like she's not wrong to tell me to pick up my toys. And yet I just couldn't control this welling up of this rage in me. I mean, and I would make mm-hmm. bargains with myself. I remember from an early age, I'd be like, all right, tomorrow when she tells you to pick up the toys, just do it, just do it. It'll take mm-hmm. you two minutes. You'll feel better afterwards. But this rage would overtake me. Mm-hmm. And a question that, and so they brought me to psychiatrists and psychologists from a very early age. And the obvious question was, why was I so angry? And I didn't know. And I still don't know. And I've thought at times like, well, maybe there was some trauma. Maybe there was some violation either at by my parents or just a viol- something that they weren't able to prevent. A babysitter did something inappropriate or some, some, you know, and I think part of that is being hospitalized. When, when I was in a mental hospital in this group therapy and people share their stories, almost everyone had a story of early horrific trauma, often sexual, mm-hmm. often at the hands of family members or caretakers like babysitters. And so I was like, well, maybe, maybe this is the answer. And I even asked my mother once, I was like, did anything happen mm-hmm. when I was young? And she seemed surprised by the question, but not offended or... You know, not, not like she was trying to conceal something. And she was like, no, not not that I know of. I mean, yeah, you had babysitters, but so, and then when I got into psychedelics, I, I often would have trips where I'd feel like, uh-oh, there's something terrible in my past that I don't want to see. And uh-oh, it's going to come up on this trip and I can't see it right now. And I'm going to hold on and it would get really scary. And then when I finally was like, all right, fuck it, just show me, show me mushroom, show me cactus, show me LSD, whatever it is I've been avoiding, show it to me. And it would be like, oh, there's nothing there. Uh, I'm terrified that there's a monster under my bed, but there's no, there's no monster. So, um, so anyway, I feel like I've dangled some <laughs> really juicy red meat in front of you. And I mean, maybe we can go into this and we can talk more about what's happening now on another episode. Yeah. I'm open to well, that. Just, yeah, I just the. I don't know. I want to honor that there was something else you wanted to get into in our in our time. There left. is, I was but this thinking, also feels like we. I, I'm open to going with this. That hunt, the hunt for the hidden trauma, I think, is a really interesting concept, and I think that it's it's easy to look for a cause of yeah some some sort of emotional suffering in in something having had happened to you yes but um there's this famous quote by the psychoanalyst donald winnicott from a paper i think it was from his paper called the fear of breakdown where he talks about the the other very important type of trauma is when quote nothing happening when something might profitably have happened so Meaning the type of trauma where something was missing. Yeah. It's not, nothing was done to you. You weren't abused or struck or molested, but perhaps, perhaps something you needed was not there. Um, and again, that doesn't have, that doesn't have to mean that a parent, it was grossly deficient in any category. It could be as like a temperamental mismatch, like you were alluding to, like you had a certain set of needs based on your disposition, the way you kind of came out of the womb or whatever constellation of factors. 
and um, perhaps your mother was just not not equipped not to to meet those needs at time or yeah that's just conjecturing i don't we still haven't haven't gotten into that all that much yeah and i will say it felt like i had a very rich upbringing i mean i this is something that i we were talked at the beginning of the episode my deep question is or not deep but one of my most enduring questions is why am i so lucky and one way i'm lucky is I didn't realize until relatively recently that not everyone has this. There was never a moment in my life where I doubted I was loved by my parents. Even in the most screaming, smashing fight with my mom, there was never a moment that I doubted that my mother and my father loved me, uh, I mean, really unconditionally. Yeah. So there may have been... Certain. It's a. It's just. I, I'm not saying this is you. No, no, no. It's I'm a not, red I'm, flag. I'm exploring it because I'm. I'm interested yeah. in it. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not refuting it. Uh, it's a red flag for a therapist when someone's like, "No, my childhood was great." Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like mm. for sure. And again, it's not. There's. There's such a. The. Uh, the options aren't. My childhood was great, or my parents were monstrously abusive. Those. There's so. The menu is so much broader than that and there's all these different shades of gray in between i'll give you an example from my own life i was having a conversation with a friend once where i said i said like man i was really feeling really appreciative for my mother in this moment i said gosh she just really really wants the best for me like my happiness is her happiness uh that was the the sentence i said and he just goes, well, that's a lot of pressure. And I'm yeah, like, huh, yeah, yeah. Wow, I'd never thought of it that way. Like, God, if my happiness is so intimately related to my mother's happiness, that's a lot of pressure on me to be happy. Yeah, which is absolutely something that I have struggled with in my life, and that I, I that something that held has held me back from reaching that sadness we were talking about and you know accessing um, conflictual emotions anger sadness and bringing healing to those places in me is that i think i did i have felt a pressure to be happy mm-hmm. and i think that came from my childhood in some ways so it's just that's an example from my life that i th- i think maybe illustrates some of the yeah, subtle like ways in which uh in which a wonderful childhood because I also had wonderful, loving parents. Oh, I don't think but I had a wonderful childhood. I mean, I was I was yeah. deeply, deeply unhappy and distressed yeah. a, a great deal of the time. But in which wonderful, wonderful families yeah. can still they can still fuck us up, and it doesn't mean they're not wonderful. It just happens. Yeah, it just happens. It's it's inevitable. They just they fuck us up. Right. No one's going to do this perfectly. And my mother was twenty five no. when she had me. Twenty six. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and and she had come from, I mean, her father died when she was 16, and she met my father several months later, you know, and I don't wow. think she really ever processed that trauma. I don't think she was in denial about it, but I think she certainly never saw a therapist or anything like that, and her own mother, my very beloved grandmother who passed away, um, well, now five years ago, um, her mother really went into a deep, deep depression where she kind of withdrew from parenting and a lot of other things. So there was... Stuff. This, yeah, this is all to say that my mother, it's its trite to say it, but I absolutely believe she did the best she could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a moment, I was, this is a couple of years ago, and 
my my youngest niece Isla was I was I was at my parents and you know sister brother in law's place, and we're having dinner and Isla who's then a, a, a baby they'd put her to sleep, and she was wailing in the other room, mm-hmm. and they were doing like the sleep training thing. Yeah, my sister and brother in law they were like no we're not going to go in, and I had this moment where I just was kind of like oh maybe that's all it was is maybe it was yeah. just a moment alone in the dark a helpless infant terrified crying and mommy isn't coming and and that that maybe that's (laughs) that's trauma enough i don't want to use the word trauma to trivialize what deep trauma can be but yeah like maybe maybe it's just the inevitable not even failings but the inevitable hurt that the world is going to inflict on you even when the world or the people who are the instruments of the world most close to you are doing everything they can to protect you from from pain right and that brings up a super important point which is that uh, a baby and its parents do not or its nuclear family do not exist in isolation you i love that term you just used the instruments of the world it reminds us that every family and every developing individual human psyche is developing in the context of culture Um, there is no growth and development outside of culture. I mean, just think of language Mm -hmm. like, uh, yeah, there was this famous, uh, or maybe apocryphal in some way example of like a King Frederick or something in like the 1500s wanted to figure out Prussian. He sounds Prussian. I don't even know what Prussia Prussia is, but he sounds Prussian to me. (laughs) We should figure out what Prussia is. Isn't it Germany? Wasn't it like, I mean, I feel like Prussia existed to World War I, but I could be wildly off on that. <laughs> sounds like the kind of so, sounds like the kind of thing that got shaken up in World War One. Yeah, it seems like there are archdukes and shit. All right, go on though. So, so King so, Fer- Frederick, potentially he Prussian. Wanted to, he potentially Prussian King Frederick. He wanted to good see name. what happened. He wanted to see what the what the native linguistic capacities of a child were. Raising a child without the influence of culture, and you know, meaning without the influence of language. So he had a crop of like presumably slave children or something raised with no human contact except for the bare necessities of life. But they were not exposed to speech or touch or nourishing touch or language. Jeez. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, they all died. Yeah. They, all, they died in, inf- in infancy. It is not possible to raise a child outside the influence of culture. And I, I think there's probably a lot of people who feel this way. And I'll, you know, I'll probably start thinking about this more when I have kids. But like maybe in 100 years, we'll look back and sleep training will look insanely barbaric. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's a really good argument to be made that right now we live in a culture, um, the standard practices of which are traumatizing to a child. Like it is, it is, we live, how could we not live in a traumatogenic culture Ooh, if we nice live word. in a culture? Nice word, just pause for a moment. Let's just savor that word. Did you make that up? Pointer. No. Either way, either way, generating yeah. trauma. No, no, I, I know it. Obviously, I'm not an idiot. I know genetic. Yeah, I know. I know that as a <laughs> as a suffix. Come on, man. Um, we didn't. We talked about this on in a conversation recently that wasn't released. But Adam has a, an incredibly high verbal fluency score on the GMAT. <laughs> right. No, not in case not anyone is looking is another, for tutoring. Another test. But go on. <laughs> right. right. How can how can culture not be traumatogenic? And I think how can culture not be traumatogenic if we live in a culture that is quickly speeding toward uh, a cliff that is going to result in the annihilation and immiseration of 
untold millions to billions of uh, members of the human species, and yet we do very little. And, all, to stop and this that. part of this also is it's an insane culture, right? And this is a culture that is built on supposed efficiency, even though there's wild inefficiencies, like to you know to increase the share price of Exxon Mobil, you know, three percent will destroy the environment forever. But also, we live in a culture that is the nuclear family is a new development. Yeah, and I think that's part of it too. Yeah, is you're not you're not getting love from a village anymore yeah and for it seems like for most of human history you got love from a village a tribe a community yeah and that has to yeah. be a very it's different experience for one person for one mother to do it all for one partner to do it all i've been thinking about that a lot recently with hannah as we continue to deepen our relationship that has unfolded entirely within the context of covid and i am realizing that some of what is so challenging for me, driving me crazy, et cetera, et cetera, would be so much less of a big deal if I just had a like the normal menu of other social connections in my life available to me right now. If I wasn't spending so much of my interpersonal time with this one person, uh, you know, during Corona time. So you think it's crazy. I'm a little, yeah, I guess I'm, I, you so you don't feel like you would be spending as much time with her were were normal percentage wise yeah. percentage wise right now she makes up like of yeah of the time i spend uh within 6 feet of another person talking without a mask on my face she makes up uh got to be 95% yeah and yeah. and and so that's crazy yeah but so and you feel sorry i'm just i i i can you so you you feel that that is taxing the relationship? I think that's taxing the relationship. Yeah, in ways I don't we don't need to go into right now, but just yeah, relating it back yeah, to yeah. Well, certainly yeah. I mean, I had this and, with with Clara, and that was yeah yeah yeah. It we are we're designed to live in community with other people, and so just the the fact that and we don't i mean that's an incredibly rare thing people talk about community yeah. all the time especially well in the bay area in new york you know it's yeah. just my dance tribe but it's not community in the sense of I, I was listening to do you know um martin prechtel no oh man so i just discovered this guy all right there's if you search youtube grief and praise that's all i've listened to by him and it just blew me out of the fucking water Who is, he? is he's a he's a uh, I don't a beacon of light. I don't know that cool. he was raised. Like a he teacher. is Swiss father, um, American Indian mother, raised on a reservation in maybe New Mexico. Went down to Guatemala, became like the head shaman in this small Mayan community of thirty thousand people there. Then there was all sorts of fucked up, you know, juntas or revolutions. I believe financed by the U.S. government that like destroyed his whole community and yeah. anyway he he talks in this grief and praise which is i mean i think we're not going to get to some of the stuff in this episode but i i will talk more about this um anyway he talks a lot about grief and uh, about things that connect to what i've been experiencing recently hmm. but the specific thing that brought him up right now is he's talking about in the village everyone knows everyone knows what you're going through you know, and it's your village. It's like, mm. oh, that's the crazy person. That's the smelly person. That's the <laughs> annoying person. But you're there for each other. You're there for each other. And he talks about how that enables you to grieve properly. He says you can't grieve alone. 
you need people mm. who are holding shit down for you to grieve. And that the reason we can't grieve properly in our culture is because we don't have the village. Mm. And they actually have professional grievers if you need help. People who will kind of get everyone started <laughs> in terms of like really uh, expressing the grief and sobbing and that, mm. that allows other people. And he talks about how, yeah, like if you're, if um, I don't want to get too much on this tangent, but he talks about how, yeah, if someone is not grieving properly, that is a major problem and they have procedures and experts essentially to address that problem, mm. in, including getting the person drunk. He talks about how alcohol, that's, that's where it can be a medicine, is just getting someone really, really drunk so that they can yeah. get the tears flowing. I think psychedelics for... Well, yeah, as we were saying. <laughs> psychedelics for grief will be a beautiful indication in the future. Yeah. But he comp, like complicated grief, just you know, instead of SSRIs. Oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, you know, I haven't thought about the, that, but let, that seems like let it flow. Yeah, such a classic case where like a kind of one and done thing, you know. Right. Not that you're totally out of the woods, but that you really facilitates this opening. But hearing him talk about the idea of, yeah, it just makes you realize how new the way that we live is. Mm. Where. Sure, there are communities, but in terms of real mutual responsibility and genuine love forged from genuine interdependence, you know? Yeah, like you're not gonna, he talks about, you're not gonna, if someone is grieving and they're sobbing and wailing in the middle of the street, you don't say, oh, this is, we have to lock this person up. You're like, oh, let's go, let's go watch. Let's go listen. Let's go be there because this is, mm. this is a powerful thing and no one's gonna steal your oxen because they know, he talks about, they know, you know, in a few weeks, a few months, they're gonna be out there wailing. They don't want, so it's this idea of, Hmm. And I think so much of where we've gotten off base is the loss of these real communities. And many people have, you know, written and spoken and thought about this much more eloquently and extensively than I have, but it just seems, it seems pretty clear and that the nuclear family is, yeah, not what we were designed for. And so that's all to say, bringing it back to my history that yeah my mother was a she was a 26 year old stay-at-home mom while my dad was at the hospital you know working uh dealing with this very 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 intense kid yeah and uh so that was our relationship for all the never doubting the love was just very fraught and i felt terrible guilt and shame over i believed and i actually still do believe that the I was the ma the major source of suffering for my parents during my growing up was me. And that sounds like a damning self judgment, but I also think I gave them a lot of joy too. Because let me be clear, it wasn't you know for me. There's always been very, very perhaps unusually intense joy in just basic experiences: looking at a sunset, looking at a tree, uh, being with family when I'm feeling good. But I do think, you know, it was a problem. What was the problem the family was confronting? The problem was that Adam was just out of control a lot right. of the time. But as is. The problem was not like, oh, dad's an alcoholic or, you know, my mom, you know, whatever. There, the pro it, If you were to identify what was the problem, I feel like you would say, oh, it was Adam. Or yeah. maybe don't personalize it. So it was Adam's, you know, behavior. Yeah. Emotions. Yeah. But again, in, when when working with a family where something like this is going on, 
there's a term there's a term in psychiatry psychology the identified patient you were the identified patient in the family but that does not mean that you because you are your behavior was arising out of a complex and a shifting system of, mm-hmm. of people yeah you were the squeaky wheel yeah but it's never helpful to assume that everyone is healthy and everything's going fine and the dynamic is great except there's this one person who's the problem right it's an interdependent system you can't just extract one point one of this diagram and say oh this is the one yeah yeah and i and i do accept that and take that to heart and yet i do feel you were tough you were really tough to deal with yeah i mean and i think the biggest victim of me was me no you know i i suffered greatly because of these super super intense uncontrollable emotions Hmm. and my attempts from a very early age to try to control and manage my emotions not with ocd i didn't have that then but certainly yeah there was a lot of thinking there was a lot of thinking a lot of figuring out a lot of trying to fix things yes yeah yeah that was and and that's of course my curiosity is where how does this inner child how does this what was once you as a child, how does that figure show up in your life now? So, all right. So we have a decision point now. We don't have to go. No, no, no. We have a de- no, no. Cause this, this would bring us to the present. I think oh. uh, the question is though, do we want to, do we want to wrap this episode and save this for another episode? Let's leave them. Let's leave them salivating. Yeah. Adams. Let's finish up. If there's anything else that we want to explore about the, the yeah, these, you in the past tantrums and then that sounds we'll good come back we'll come back and we'll get into little adam uh who lives inside your brain and what he's up to these days yeah yeah so right this is all context for yeah what i would say again feels like a really big shift in transformation i've been undergoing that is in some ways the best thing in my life. It's something that I am eager to see what happens when I bring this out into the world Mm. because I do feel like there's been a lot gestating and changing as a result of how I've chosen an emphasis on chosen to show up to my relationship with my parents to a degree that I never have before. Mm. That's the teaser for next episode, by the way. Beautiful. (laughs) Um, But yeah, in terms of other past stuff, um, well, actually, um, yeah, I'll bring it a little bit more up to the present. So so when I went away to college, the relationship shifted pretty significantly, When I wasn't, which I think is probably not unusual. When I wasn't living at home. What was it like in adolescence? What was it like, like middle school, high school? Bad. bad. I mean, this was, really? this was a continuous. My earliest memory is of a huge fight with my mom. And my father typically was not, he was typically absent, literally. He was often at work. Mm. And, but then sometimes he would get home from work and he'd be really furious. Mm. And this was one of those times where he actually, I think this is my earliest memory. He took a toy of mine and almost methodically broke it apart, mm. which is so unlike him. He's a very gentle person because he was just so upset because I remember, I have many memories of my father saying, you've made your mother cry. Mm. And that was the most devastating thing for me to hear the guilt and shame I would feel when I heard that because I knew I, I knew I was a bad kid growing up. I 
I didn't like it was just an unquestioned thing that there was something very wrong with me and bad I think is the word I conceived I, I used in my inner monologue as a child that like I didn't think I was a bad I knew I was a gentle sensitive loving kid mm-hmm. but there was something very very wrong that I would make my mother cry on an almost daily basis yeah and I wonder I have wondered so the first sort of manifestation of something that would be considered OCD spectrum for me with bot was body dysmorphic disorder which emerged I believe around 11 or so we talked about this in the early episodes mm-hmm. and it's a, it's kind of maybe a little too pat metaphorically but I've sometimes wondered it was it like this this badness I felt that it kind of manifest in a sense of oh I'm externally wrong I'm externally ugly yeah this ugliness within so but either way the body dysmorphic disorder that kick things up a notch because now it was like so I always knew there was something wrong with me but now I knew what was wrong with me and I tied it together my 11 year old brain thought that oh I'm so angry at my mom because I'm so ugly that maybe she can't really love me or I'm just angry because Mm -hmm. I know I'm screwed like the world is never going to give me what I want I'm never going to find you know that was around the time I was starting to enter puberty I'm never going to find a girlfriend or so somehow in my mind that was a not quite logical but served as some explanation for why i was so i'd get into these huge fights with my mom was my hideous ugliness yeah Yeah, it was a way to get certainty i keep yeah i mean i my impulse is just to keep going back to this five-year-old you who thought he was bad and this like yeah this language from your father you made your mother cry because it's just, you know, from the remove of, of years and being an adult and like knowing what it's, uh, what it, the developmental level of a five-year-old, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, the concept of a five-year-old being bad. It's kind of like. Right. And they, and they, let me be clear. They never said you're, you're a bad kid. Right. But yes, I did hear you made your mother cry. (laughs) You made your mother cry is. Yeah, it's not nonviolent communication. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's very shaming. It's very shaming. Yeah, and I think my parents... So if we're going to get a little more intergenerational, they were very determined to make me feel loved because I my father did not get that. Yeah. And we've talked, you know, in later years, more recently, uh, about the challenge where they want to set boundaries, trying to, to walk this line with you're a good kid and we love you, but what you're doing is not good. It is not okay. Yeah. Smashing, you know, your dinner plate down because your because mom tells you to put away your book is not okay. Yeah. And you know, that's, yeah, no, I, 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 I keep coming back to like, I can't, I'm not saying they did a perfect job, but I don't, I don't know what they could have done. Yeah differently tough situation and it yeah it made me think of uh my girlfriend hannah has a dog and sometimes i get the the dog is what type of dog yeah i didn't know this we haven't we haven't talked about this This oh really oh this is a whole thing yeah we got to get into you get you get a surrogate dog man that's pretty sweet i haven't had a, a i i have not had a girlfriend or a partner or even a casual 
protracted sexual relationship with someone with a, with a pet in many years. Yeah. Um, I, it's really interesting for a lot of reasons. I'd love to talk more about it. Do we need, it's do we like, need a pseudonym for the dog to protect it? We probably should. We need a, we, I think we need a pseudonym for the dog and a pseudo, a pseudo species, I think okay. would be most responsible. Okay. Well, is it a pretty specific obscure breed? Somewhat. Well, we'll just leave the breed out. Okay. Mid-sized Breeds dog. don't matter. Mid-sized we don't see dog. breed on this podcast. Not, <laughs> we're progressive. We don't see breed. Someone's like, is that, is that a golden retriever that just bit that small child? I'm sorry. I don't, don't see breed officer. Could have, been a, could have been a cat for all I know. <laughs> oh, the wokest. <laughs> it's a mid-sized dog. Uh, not a puppy, but a young, a young dog. And pretty a, a wonderful loving dog uh but sometimes has some behavioral problems i like how jordan's therapy has gotten down to comparing me to a dog <laughs> <laughs> no but having a dog a surrogate dog in a relationship it's super interesting back to the concept of triangulation we were talking about earlier this is the so other relationship useful. in your and hannah's your and hannah's otherwise dyad, other, yeah. you also have yeah sparky and or. it's and it's an amazing data point yeah it's an amazing how data she is point. with the dog how you are with I the get dog to see how how she is with the dog how i am with the dog yeah i get to see how feelings how my feelings toward her are mirrored in my feelings toward the dog which is a super helpful mirror you're like man could I, can, I could i find a better dog because it to- it it'll at times it'll totally blow up my story of like why I'm uh, wanting to push her away or something because because I'll have a story about that right she's not this enough she's not that enough it'll be a specific thing I'll th- my heart will be closed to her and the story in my head will be it's because of a specific deficiency that I have identified in her but then I'll notice that the dog is you know wants to like play with me or cuddle with me or something and I'll I'll be very hostile and closed off to the dog be annoyed by the dog and it's like that totally explodes the story right. you can't be like ah oh, that dog just like, isn't that dog, not this soft dog's enough. not attractive yeah. enough this dog's yeah this dog you know i just don't know if i have the quality of connection like the intellectual dog i'm looking for me. with this dog yeah i just don't think this dog i think there's another dog out there that would get me better so it's a so I, and you know and I, and so i can reduce it i can reduce the experience down to its essence which is just like Oh, I'm just having trouble letting love in right now. Like mm. this dog is just a being that wants to come love me, and I'm having trouble letting the dog love me. Wow. And I'm having trouble letting this woman love me. So super useful. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, we need to come up with like a pithy name for this uh, type of therapy or this concept. <laughs> like yeah, dog. Uh, the dog. Let's get, triad. let's get a lovable animal in this relationship with you and your partner and see what happens. Yeah. But um. But I'll find myself the other day, the dog jumped up on the counter and ate some food and I get so mad, like so, so mad sometimes. And I'll just, yeah, I'll just, you're afraid the dog yeah, is going to put on weight and you'll be less attracted to him. <laughs> exactly. It's actually this dog, this dog likes carrots. It's kind of insane. This dog, it was a carrot. This I, dog. I've never heard my, of it. My doggy, Henry. The oldest pug in history. He died when he was 16. And, I, well, you know, but he, he liked baby carrots. Yeah. 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 I, I didn't know. Yeah. But uh, so I wasn't worried about the weight gain. I was just worried about the behavior. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, yeah, the impulse to 
you know, hit the dog or say something mean or shame the dog or whatever. All these nasty impulses come up and I'll catch myself and it's just like, this is a fucking dog. Like just being, doing dog things. You can't, I feel that way when I, that, that same feeling comes up when we think about your behavioral problems when you were a little kid. Like, obvi- I mean, so much, again, I'm not a parent, uh, so much sympathy for what your parents have yeah. to deal with because that sounds super hard and they are obviously well-meaning people who are trying to do right. But but identifying you as def- as deficient in some way this lang- this shaming language again not to yeah yeah and to put anything on your dad but the language of you made your mother cry that the anger behind that i get it i feel that toward this dog all the time but at some point you got to catch yourself and step back and be like this is just an organism trying to figure out how to thrive and adapt in a complex system with uh yeah, with like many different inputs and his, and historical precedents leading to this moment of aberrant behavior. Like, well, how did this happen? Like, let's but is to take a systems level approach to understanding how that happened, and not just say you made your mother cry. So it seems like you're you're proceeding on the the idea that that is not wasn't a good thing to say, but I'm not sure I accept that because I feel like, or let's let's broaden it. I, I think shame can be useful. Yeah. I think shame can be, and we've joked in the past about, about how doing shame therapy, getting people to feel more shame. <laughs> yeah. But in seriousness, I feel like on the face of it, if I just kind of think about it in the moment right now, it feels to me like, yeah, my father, absolutely. He was trying to make me feel guilty about what I did. Yeah. And I think he was doing it not, I mean, yes, he was angry and he was reacting emotionally, but I think there was also a calculation there that, well, I want him to feel bad about what he's doing so he doesn't do it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's not a legitimate approach. I think shame is, right? To me, it seems like shame and guilt can be effective disciplinary and behavioral modification tools if used judiciously. Yeah. So at another Pema Chodron-ism that perfectly ties these things together comes to mind where she's talking about meditation and she's talking about how to relate to your mind while you're meditating and you notice yourself, whatever, off in la la land. Right. You're like, you fucking idiot. Pay attention. Yeah. That's, that's my meditation practice. And she, exactly. <laughs> Me too. Oftentimes <laughs> it's, it's not, but it has been it. in the past. <laughs> So she actually draws an analogy to dog training yeah. Um, in, in her Dharma talks. And she talks about there are multiple ways to train a dog. You can train a dog with, uh, yeah, with violence, anger, shame, guilt. And you probably will get, you probably will modify the behavior. You probably will get in some form the outcome that you're looking for. But the behavior will be rigid. The dog will be neurotic. The dog will be inflexible. I mean, it'll do the thing. It'll stop jumping up on the counter and eating the carrot because it remembers that something yeah. terrible happened last time it did that. But it won't. It won't lead to like flexible and adaptive behavior change where the dog also knows how to behave better in in a different and similar situation or something like that. Or you can train a dog with love, she says, and it will be confident, happy, 
flexible, less neurotic, and still eventually you will get the specific behavior change you were looking for. And so I don't, I don't disagree with you. I don't think Pema would disagree with you that shame and guilt uh, on a child are, uh, are, yeah, are potentially um, viable ways to change a problematic behavior. And yeah, but I think, but I, but I don't think they're ultimately the most in service of building a flexible, like resilient, confident, happy child. Exhibit A over but, here, <laughs> referring to myself. <laughs> yeah, but I, yes, but, I. Sorry, go. But on. maybe there is, yeah, maybe I don't know, but maybe the role of shame and guilt in society are are important in some way. And but I, I think on the level of the individual psyche, that's what I think. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, but is, is society is just a collection of individual psyches. Yeah. I don't think you can say this is effective at... Ultimately, I, I do feel like the shame came from myself. Like, I was uh, a very yeah. highly aware uh, child, and right. I was very aware of the distress I was causing my mother, and I felt... So so it wasn't like this was That's what you learn in Jewish Jewish parenting school 101 is how to <laughs> how to how to generate that guilt that keeps on giving <laughs> that comes from within the child <laughs> self-generating. But yeah, well I I would say we've done this thing which some 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 people I know who are fans of the podcast one note we've gotten is you'll be like all right, we're wrapping up and then you talk for another 18 minutes about something which is I think we've gotten slightly better. Yeah. But I'm going to say I'm going to put a state. It. We are going to we're we're going to wrap up within 60 seconds. So if you're still here, listener, hopefully plural, you're almost you're almost there. But um, no, I think I I, I think it's uh, all right. I'm I'm backing off that because it seems like you want to have something you have something you want to say. No, no, no. We're good. I, I I don't need to accelerate us to an end. I mean, whoever's listening is listening, and <laughs> they kind of know what what they're getting with this. I, I was just going to suggest that. Um, that we wrap it up because I think, yeah. and I think maybe release this, release this as a two part episode uh, because I think the second part will, will flow from this, which is, yeah. So that, that, that is the journey of my relate not the journey. <laughs> I feel like such a psychedelic cliche using the word journey for everything. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, was your, how was your Uber ride to the party, Adam? Uh, the journey was, it was very, it was, it was really, uh, I, I saw a lot about myself and power dynamics <laughs> with, with people of different um, ethnicities. No, it was, well, it has been a journey, my relationship with my parents, as I imagine most people's are, where there's been a lot of evolution. But the big shift, the first big shift happened after. So it was extremely fraught and contentious throughout high school. And then when I went away to college, it got significantly better when I was not living with them anymore. And I'd say it was a significant enough shift that I would have said, at that point, like, yeah, I have a good relationship with my parents. I started to be able to just enjoy them as friends. And yeah, why don't, at least, I, th I think I can leave my history at that point for today. Mm. Cool. I look forward to hearing more. Yeah. And seeing how all this is showing up inside your mind. And body. And heart. And body. Well, I guess and those are all parts of body. The fifth through ninth dimensional yeah. layers of consciousness. I actually have another podcast co-host in dimensions five through nine. I didn't <laughs> want to <laughs> make you feel badly about it, but Oh no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Um, all right, man. All right. Well, great talking. I, I appreciate yeah. exploring this stuff and hey, you got a few tears out of me. I feel like as a psychiatrist, that's like a good day's work. Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> 
just remember to remember when you're writing me the check for today's session to add the tier <laughs> multiplier. It's a gratuity. It's a gratuity for that you. That was please. seven seven tiers, so that's a three point two um, multiplier on the fee today. It feels feels justified. Yeah. All right. Well. All right, my friend. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.